Hello everybody. I'm very pleased to be here with you today. I uh, came here the last year uh, following one seminar in Science and Spirituality um, series. And I said to myself, hmm, this could be a good place for me as well. Uh, so, uh, what I presented today, it's a research project I'm working on on an independent basis uh, since uh, many years at this point. Uh, this represents a lot to me and uh, I'm sure it will definitely become bigger and bigger and uh, become my main occupation in the future. Uh, but this is the first time I present uh, this research project in, in its entirety. I uh, worked in the last few days on this presentation, so it's, a, it's an opportunity for me to, to present, to reflect together with you on what I'm going to say, to present it in a thorough way. And I'm just here to share, just here to share and uh, uh, listen to what you have to say on what I'm telling you. Um, I'm happy, I'm, I'm really happy this is happening. I've uh, uh, been working on my own on these things for so much time and now it's a great satisfaction for me to see it uh, you know, in a structured form as the one I'm sharing now. So, uh, two parts of my presentation. <coughs> uh, the first part, I name it Reconciling Law and Science, and the second part, Building a New Paradigm. But before we enter into the topic, I'd like to introduce uh, myself a little bit. So you already know I'm Italian, I'm coming from Padova, close by Venice. Uh, by the way, Padova where the city, is the city where Galileo Galilei uh, did most of his work. Uh, he was born in Pisa and then moved to Padova uh, in the 16th century. Uh, so, my story. Formal education. I started off uh, from a degree in communication sciences at the University of Padua. And then I followed with a PhD in applied economics at the University of Amsterdam. Uh, that was a long PhD, many years uh, to complete it. I was doing other things at the time and I did most of my research work at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Boston. Um, and then I also uh, worked uh, in other social uh, scientific disciplines at the Austrian Academy of Science at, uh, and at two other universities in Italy. Um, so I've been really a pilgrim in social sciences, meaning that I, I've been journeying through different disciplines, uh, driven by my own curiosity, and driven also by a realization that I wasn't finding what I was looking for. Somehow every discipline um, presented uh, uh, constraints uh, that I didn't want to cope with and was limiting me. So I was, uh, um, by curiosity, attracted to other disciplines. I was eager to know more. And um, uh, there was always this um, intuition within myself that uh, something was not completely right uh, in the way social sciences were, were done. Uh, something was missing, and this uh, was probably common sense, and then I elaborated on that, of course. Uh, so what is common sense? I was often, you know, the critical one raising that difficult question, or that obvious questions to the, uh, you know, disciplinary experts. And, um, you know, that creates uh, 
you know, difficulties for me also in terms of academic career, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And uh, the, I, I chose this image for this slide. That's <clears throat> the main building of the MIT in Boston. And it was quite an experience for me there. Because that is the place where new technologies are invented, where science really, it, it's the temple of science technology, if you want, of the scientific and technological view in, uh, in its hardest uh, form, uh, one of the temples. And, um, you know, I learned a lot there, just, but just observing, not just, uh, you know, what uh, uh, was said within, uh, you know, the walls, but also how people behave, you know, as, as I'm, I'm curious, I'm an observer. Um, I, I learned a lot, not only there, though. Um, there, there's another side of the story. This is, that is the older rest. Uh, I mean, that's an important side as well. I, I think that every single opportunity in life, um, is, every single thing that happens in life is an opportunity for learning. And, uh, you know, even these things that I list here are useful for my uh, scientific research. It's not just I see that I see you know, the, the scientific side of things to be explored within the world of academia, and then all the rest is, is, is different. I, I find inspiration and content for my work through every experience. Uh, as as you're, um, you're reading here, I'm not only an academic, I'm also a practitioner in the real world as an entrepreneur in the past, and now a consultant. And I was looking forward to become you know, uh, also a non-academic, because I, you know, how could I <clears throat> talk about the social world if I wasn't experiencing it in, you know, in the first place there, in, 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 in the real world, quote-unquote. Uh, then I, I'm a father of two, and uh, uh, since a few years I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very active family and friend's life. There's, you know, this smiling symbol here, but it's not always, you know, the smiling symbol. It's, it's a lot of work, and uh, it's very gratifying, and it's a lot of learning from children. From children. It's, it's quite extraordinary what, what I, every day I learn from, from my children, and it was a tremendous opportunity to grow as a human being and as a scientist. And then uh, I moved by, by a passion for art, Renaissance in particular, you know, Padua was one of the main places where uh, Italian Renaissance developed, and um, nature and traveling, and then I meditate. I regularly meditate since a few years. I, um, I tried different meditation um, forms, typologies, uh, certainly Christian meditation, I learned a bit meditation uh, through, uh, through Buddhism, I'm reading from other religions uh, about meditation, um, but I, I do it, I do it in my own way, <laughs> which I don't know how to describe, uh, probably very close to John May's uh, way, uh, and it works, it works, and uh, it, it, it's transforming me. It, it's, making it better, and, and uh, it's quite uh, amazing. So, let's get into the topic. Um, where, where to start from? So, once upon a time, there existed natural philosophy, uh, whose key principles were observation, speculation, and final cause. So, before, before the existence of science, 
modern science, something else was in place. Um, and let, let's read this quote from Thomas Paine, this um, American um, political thinker of the 17th century. Uh, century. Uh, he described uh, natural philosophy in this way. That which is known now called natural philosophy, embracing the whole circle of science of which astronomy occupies the chief place, is the study of the works of God and of the power and wisdom of God in his works and is the true theology. So before modern science was born, um, human beings still look at the world in a scientific way, in a different scientific way, I would, I would say. They, um, well, since, since uh, the age of the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, since Aristotle, of course, um, human beings were uh, observing uh, the world, observing the universe, were speculating on it, and uh, they were also uh, moved by this intuition that there are final causes out there that make things happen. And um, this, this, this vision of, um, of research persisted a long time, uh, in the Western world at least, and it was enmeshed with theology. I mean, there wasn't such a, a, you know, a difference between um, doing research, observing the world, and revealing God. The two things were the same, um, were the same somehow, because God was revealing itself into nature. Uh, but then something happened at a certain point in history. So let's go further. Natural philosophy, in the 19th century especially, was taken over by modern science, whose key principles are different. They are positivism, empiricism, and instrumentality. Let's start from another quote from Bernard Coyne. So, uh, the 17th century witnessed the birth of modern science as we know it today. This science was something new, based on a direct confrontation of nature by experiment and observation. But there was another feature of this new, of the new science, a dependence on numbers, on real numbers of actual experience. So, Bernard Kahn was a 20th century history of a science professor, and uh, he's telling us that um, something different was uh, was uh, shaping in, in the modern era, based on positivism, so the conviction that human beings had that they could positively affirm themselves, even um, in, um, if, if, if God I mean, was not taken into account somehow. Empiricism is referred to this new uh, attention that uh, uh, researchers had to uh, facts, to empirical data that could be collected in many different ways. And it wasn't always the case uh, in the previous ages um, that, that uh, facts were so much uh, revered as uh, uh, on the opposite side. It was more about um, you know, theology as uh, coming from, from, from the Bible um, it, itself. And then instrumentality, meaning that this new knowledge that uh, human beings were trying to create would become an instrument to accomplish something else, which is to improve 
humankind conditions in this world. And um, so the birth of modern science goes hand in hand with the rise of modernity, the whole modernity as a, as a philosophy. And um, um, it, it parallels um, and the Enlightenment um, era, it, it parallels the industrial revolutions. It goes hand in hand with these big cultural shifts, um, which um, you know have many commonalities with modern science in that they also place these principles at their core. And um, there's also something else that happens uh, in this um, period of time. The affirmation of uh, the state, the nation state, and uh, the industry. And these um, material and commercial interests are somehow fueling the expansion of, of, of science. So the two things, um, the industrial age, modernity and modernity go hand in hand and modern science becomes, you know, uh, somehow a tool uh, for this uh, philosophy to um, affirm itself. So, uh, why is this important for the topic we're discussing today? Because at that moment in time, it has <clears throat> somehow, if we want to call it this way, between God and science, is created. Um, let's read what uh, uh, Theodor Adorno uh, wrote uh, about this. On their way towards modern science, human beings have discarded meaning. The concept is replaced by the formula, the cause by rules, and probability. And Ilya Delio, um, one of her books is, is over there, by the way. Um, She's a theologian uh, working in, uh, still um, working in the US, says the inability to develop a new metaphysics in the face of emerging empirical science left a gaping, a gaping hole in modern thinking. So somehow uh, God was displaced, metaphysics uh, was displaced, and that gap was, um, had been never filled since somehow. Um, but other tensions uh, have been generating, uh, probably because of that gap. So, my independent research part, and now we arrive to uh, my research. Um, as I previously said, I'm presenting something I'm doing on an independent basis. I do other things for living, actually, these days, which is teaching at the University of Bologna and consulting for big firms through a um, a research organization. So my independent research path has not been derived from these premises. That means that I had to recuperate these premises in order to uh, broaden the context in which to explain my, my work. Instead, my research path derived straight from my academic experiences, also from my non-academic experiences, but it seems to address a common concern, which is the following. My research is indeed animated by this guiding question. So how can what we call God and what we call science be reconciled for humankind to improve its understanding of both? So God, science, but also understanding. Understanding is something I deeply care about. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not just uh, 
a reconciliation that is done in whatever way. It has to be anchored to understanding. And I explain later what I mean with understanding. So this reconciliatory potential, and I'm reading now, has been recognized by several notable scientists, first among all Albert Einstein, uh, who I think everybody knows. <laughs> so scientists, uh, sorry, Einstein, um, as you can read here, said that science without religion is lame, religion without science is blind. And uh, he also said that the more he studied science, uh, the more he believed in God. So, um, definitely, uh, there's something there. There's something there that is worth uh, being explored. So I've been doing, uh, um, actually, I, I did a simple uh, exercise on the, um, on the notion of love, universal love, of course. And I discovered what you are reading here. So the truth is that these days, at least, love isn't currently accounted for in science. Um, so I did this exercise, I looked for economics um, in Wikipedia. So if you look at economics in Wikipedia, that generates a long page, actually more than 18,000 um, words, but the number of occurrences of the world law, zero. <laughs> <laughs> then, then, then I tried the sociology, more than 17,000 words, and number of occurrences of the world law, zero. <laughs> Uh, then psychology, uh, more than 20,000 words. Actually, I rerun this experiment today before coming because I had old numbers from two years ago. And psychology was, uh, at the time, two years ago, stuck to 13,000. Now it's 21,000. It's staggering what happened in only two years. So 20, more than uh, 21,000 uh, words. It was... Um, and, and the number of occurrences of the world law, six. I think it was one when I uh, <laughs> ran the exercise two years ago. Six, six times. And, uh, uh, and then I searched for love, uh, more than 8,000 uh, words. Number of occurrences of the world science, three. <laughs> okay, but, and then I, um, well, let's do it now together. Let's go to Google Scholar which is the search engine for a scientist. And let's, uh, so here you, um, you look for uh, um, articles. And, uh, you might have to click these boxes. Oh, yeah, sure. Yes. Um, I've got a bit of virus on my computer. <laughs> <laughs> so let's look for love and see what scientists are talking about. So, optical wave guide theory, but I don't see any hint of, you know, love. Here there's love, but probably it's in the name of somebody here. <laughs> Definition for use, but then sends <clears throat> a simple morning layers or theolates on metals, biological wastewater treatment. Oh, because the, you know, the author, 
is named again love. Uh, and then related searches. That's also interesting. Of course, I, I ran this experiment before, so it's not a surprise. So look at what love is, is associated to. So it's mostly, uh, I guess, romantic love, um, but also true love, tough love, romance related, and uh, other things. So love songs. So this is, this is songs on love. What's triangular theory? Oh, that's, that's a story. <laughs> that would be interesting. That could be the trinity. Psychological review. Uh, which is what the nature of love and which love's in kind of relationship. There are three components, intimacy, connectedness. Well, this actually addresses the issue of love from a psychological perspective. Certainly, as we said, psychology addresses love. Um, but as far as I know, loving psychology is, is an emotion, as other emotions. It's on pair with other emotions. Yet several distinguished scientists and human beings have recognized its fundamental role in the world, the role that love plays in the world. So I selected a few. Let's start from Gandhi, who uh, affirmed that love is the strongest force the world possesses, and yet it is the humblest imaginable. So a force. For Gandhi, uh, love is, uh, is a force. Uh, Einstein himself affirmed that love is a better master than duty. So uh, Einstein saw love already in normative terms. So something that uh, provides indication on, on what to do. Um, let's go to um, to Carl Sagan, um, a physicist, a Italian astronomer actually, uh, worked uh, through the last century, and uh, he affirmed that for small creatures such as we, the vastness is bearable only through love. So love is a way to capture uh, the vastness of the universe. Then Thich Nhat Hanh, I don't know how many of you know Thich Nhat Hanh, um, master um, Buddhist, um, Thich Nhat Hanh affirms that understanding is love's other name. So understanding and love are the faces of the same, uh, the two, sorry, the two sides of the same coin. And uh, talking about understanding, let's see what Marie Curie uh, had to say about it. So Marie Curie um, said that nothing in life is to be feared, it is only to be understood. Now is the time to understand more so that we, might, we may fear less. So the issue of fear that is uh, brought up uh, when talking about understanding. And understanding, uh, according to Thich uh, Nhat is the other um, side of the coin of love. So, the letter on the universal force of love. So I uh, found this document, actually somebody sent this document to me, a uh, link to it, and uh, it, is, um, it is a fake document. It is a document signed by Albert Einstein, supposedly a letter that Einstein sent to his daughter. Um, so it was demonstrated that it's a fake as the real author is still unknown, but actually it's 
It's a quite surprising one, at least to me, it's a beautiful one. So I, I'm going to read um, a few lines from this letter. A letter from Albert Einstein to his daughter about the universal force, which is love. There is an extremely powerful force that, so far, science has not found a formal explanation to. It is a force that includes and governs all others, and is even behind any phenomenon operating in the universe, and has not yet been identified by us. This universal force is love. When scientists looked for a unified theory of the universe, they forgot the most powerful unseen force. Love is light that enlightens those who give and receive it. Love is gravity because it makes some people feel attracted to others. Love is power because it multiplies the best we have and allows humanity not to be extinguished in their blind selfishness. Love unfolds and reveals. For love we live and die. Love is God and God is love. This force explains everything and gives meaning to life. This is the variable that we have ignored for too long. Maybe because we are afraid of love, because it is the only energy in the universe that man has not learned to drive at will. So, I found this incredibly profound and I, <laughs> I don't really care about this. I decided I, I would just, uh, you know, be guided by these words and, uh, you know, include these words in, in, in my work, to support my work. I also wrote a draft paper on love and uh, I uh, drafted it Probably a couple of years ago, and it's still there in one of my folders. It's not. It's not. It has not been published. It could not be published. I mean, it's uh, still a draft paper. But um, I reread it uh, a few weeks back uh, when I started preparing for this presentation, and I said, hmm, maybe I could, uh, you know, um, give value to it in some pieces of it. So I am going to read some pieces of it first. Let's take a look to the content. So the introduction, science abstracts reality from love. Part two, love is captured through the heart. Love as agent of synthesis and healing. The notion of love is neglected by the social sciences. Theories versus laws and the different functions of science. Conclusion, science with the heart. Science with the heart. Probably that was the time when I somehow came up with this notion of science with the heart. So, I'm going to read a few lines. Love is the defining property of life, the engine that makes life in all its manifestations possible. It is the essence and defining aim of life in that all manifestations of life are aimed to love as would be impossible otherwise. Scientific research is inherently analytical and reductionist. By dissecting every integral and whole subject matter in its basic components, science inadvertently loses touch with the overall underpinning energy of love that makes the subject matter come into being in the first place. 
Yet, love is what make all objects persist in space and time. It, was, it is what assigns, what assigns them a specific purpose in relation to the ecosystem which they belong to. Being blind to the energy of love equals, for science, depriving scientific methods of observation of their highest function in him, because the direction of love which flows through them is not accounted for. Like photography, today's science freezes reality in time in order to make it visible to human eyes and mind, but in doing so, it deprives, it deprives it of the very harmony that keeps subjects alive and united to their ecosystems. Depriving reality of its intrinsic law implies the impossibility of understanding its directionality. Thus, the way to healing in case of something falls off track. Abstracting reality from love returns us a world where human beings where we human beings are no longer able to understand their way to go. We still hold an intuition when something goes into a direction where it should not, denoting a disease to be cured, but we are no longer able to see the direction of the flow. So this is what I wrote about love a couple of years ago. I thought it would be the perfect moment to bring it out here together with you. And here comes my grand hypothesis. Actually, it's only the first one, because I have three. <laughs> so my grand hypothesis is that, is that we have, we human beings have a, a direct way of accessing this law I'm talking about, which is what I call good and universal common sense, which is our sensor and compass to align with the universal force of law. To align, because law has a direction. And it's calling us to tap into that flow. So my proposed definition of good and universal common sense is the following. A higher form of logical intuition and attribute of the heart, which is related to the emotional capacity of all human beings to distinguish the positive from the negative, the useful from the damaging, the specific from the generic. So. This, I think, is what unites us uh, as human beings. And common sense. Common sense has often been deemed an enemy of science, as enemy of science. Common sense, I mean, you say, you use common sense to scientists, they told you, oh, you're not a scientist because common sense is the antithesis of science. We fight common sense through social science. We fight prejudices. Common sense is associated to a number of things. As you can see here, uh, what this author, Corey Matthews, uh, you know, um, defines as science versus common sense. If science is the objective exercise of data collection, objective data collection, common sense is subjective data collection. Uh, science cares about systematic observations, and common sense hit or miss observation. Science relies on evidence, and common sense ignores uh, counter evidence. And Charles Darwin affirmed that a scientific man ought not to have wish, uh, wishes, affections, but a mere heart of stone. But actually, 
actually, to be honest, I think there's a point in all this mm. because um, scientific research requires human beings to uh, control their emotions, their subjectivity. They requires them to detach from such emotions that can make them think that they know even if they don't know. They may uh, come up with the hypothesis that they fall in love with without the need of verifying them in the empirical world. So I have to say there are, there were, and there are still good reasons why science is skeptical of common sense. Uh, well, but in, in the everyday, you know, meaning, what is common sense? Let's go to Wikipedia, let's look at Wikipedia. I, I cut and paste what I found here, uh, what I found in Wikipedia here. So common sense is some practical judgment concerning everyday matters or a basic ability to perceive, understand, and judge that is shared by, shared by, that is to say, common to nearly all people. And that is something different. That's, that talks about some practi practical, practical judgment. So it's not just... Uh, about data collection or the hypothesis generation is a practical judgment, is a compass, compass somehow. And then there's this notion that uh, common sense is shared by nearly, nearly uh, I don't know why they say nearly, uh, but uh, nearly all people. Um, well, well I mean, probably in that near, that nearly highs the difference. Um, that uh, I care about, because in my good and universal uh, common sense, there's no space for nearly. It's just all people. Uh, it's not that good and universal common sense, uh, you know, is, is an attribute of, of, of some types of people, or uh, is, you know, generated by you know, certain cultures or uh, human beings. It's, it belongs to us um, as, as human beings. So as you can see, when talking about common sense, I'm uh, really talking about something uh, different than what uh, uh, scholars um, and other people might talk about. But certainly there are commonalities. So my other grand hypothesis at this point, the one that good and universal common sense allows all human beings to bridge two separated epistemological levels of the world. So the hypothesis here uh, is that two separated epistemological levels of the world exist, which is to say the fundamental level or metaphysical world or world of love and the superficial level, which is the manifested world. Actually, I'm not the first to claim that, that there exist uh, two uh, Worlds, uh, if you want, um, and coexist. Two worlds coexist. Um, but uh, what I I think is original here is uh, the fact that I um, I think I perceive the properties, uh, which are properties connected to scientific research of these two worlds. Talking about the fundamental level. I see uh, organicism. Uh, it's a level where, you know, there is organicism versus mechanicism that is a characteristic, a property of the superficial level of the world. 
Synthesis. The ability and principle of synthesis is to be found at the fundamental level of the world versus analysis, which is a property of the manifested world, or at least a way to access the manifested world. It's quite a, uh, huge here. Uh, then simplicity, I underline this, um, versus complexity. So the manifested world out there is, is highly complex. It's tremendously complex. It's becoming more and more complex, but at the fundamental level, things remain in my view, simple, extraordinarily simple. So simplicity is a property that pertains to a different world. And uh, somehow there's no point of connection between these two worlds. Or there are many, and we still don't know that. Then analogy is probably a property of the fundamental level of the world versus peculiarity. So analogies between things are to be found at this fundamental level, but in the superficial level everything is peculiar and, and unique. Laws, the laws that govern our world, are to be found in the realm of the metaphysical world versus theories that are the tool we have at our disposal, a given means to interpret the superficial level of the world, the manifested world. Causality is a property of the fundamental level of the world, and I think it's not out of chance that science cannot come to grips with this notion of causality, uh, which is, you know, so puzzling. Uh, this uh, correlation is relatively easy to find in the manifesto world. You correlate one things that happen with something else, one property to the other property, but causality to me belongs to a different world. And uh, positivity, meaning, uh, I mean, the property of being positive and good by definition is a characteristic of the metaphysical world. And contradictions is what we perceive in the manifested world. Uh, there's rarely a, posit a positive in the manifested world that isn't uh, there by contrast with the negative somehow. So the hypothesis is that these two realms can be bridged through good and universal common sense, which is by the way, the common sense of the art. And I found this expression, the common sense of the art, in the writings of, the, um, of a few researchers operating at the Art Math Institute. Go figure, Art Math Institute in the US. Mm -hmm. And they, they study the art from different points of view. And uh, they talk about the common sense of the art. So they are uh, physiologists, they are uh, physicists that just study the art. So I think, I mean, one day we could have an empirical evidence that this good and universal common sense exists as, as, a, as a specific vibration, probably. Okay. 
I think uh, here ends my first part. The second part starts building a new scientific paradigm. So the first step is overcoming the current roadblocks to the evolution of science towards a science with a heart. So <clears throat> I take my notes again. Let's start again. So let's start from the notion of a paradigm. What is a paradigm and why do we need a new scientific paradigm, at least according to, uh, to me? <laughs> so, um, Einstein, again, said that we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. Um, I very much agree with Einstein. The problems are the symptom that something is wrong in our thinking. So how can we pretend that we can purport that we can use the same thinking when solving those problems? And Rumi um, actually went even beyond, said that problems cannot be solved, can only be overcome. That, that's inspiring to me, that's inspiring, this overcome. And this overcomes, you know, make me think of love, love, the power of love to make us overcome things. So let's read what Thomas Kuhn, the inventor of this notion of paradigm, um, had to say about uh, paradigms. Actually, I have it printed out. There's no need to, uh, to go to this uh, page. So, a paradigm shift, I'm reading Wikipedia that interprets Kuhn. A paradigm shift, a, a concept identified by the American physicist and philosopher Thomas Kuhn, 1922-1996, is a fundamental change in the basic concepts and experimental practices of a scientific discipline. Kuhn contrasted, the, contrasted these shifts which characterize a scientific revolution to the activity of normal science, which he described as scientific work done within a prevailing framework or paradigm. In this context, the word paradigm he used is used in its original Greek meaning as example. That is to, to say, I'm just you know jumping here and there, the science which can decide if a certain problem will be considered scientific or not. Within, um, within a paradigm, the paradigms determine what, what is scientific and what is not. It's not just a framework, um, that is to say, a language or a method or a theory it is also a statement about what is scientific and what is not. And um, um, the paradigm in Kuhn's view is not simply the current theory, but the entire worldview, Weltanschauung, in which it exists and all the implications which come with it. In the structure of scientific revolutions, Kuhn wrote, successfully Successive transition from one paradigm to, the, uh, to another via revolution is the usual developmental pattern of mature science. So, paradigms, shifts are the most of science. So, uh, I think the future will bring surprises to us in terms of new paradigms emerging. Uh, so, what should be the purpose of a new paradigm? And here I add meta-paradigm. I, I don't know, I, 
Um, I want to be ambitious, or, or, or at least um, that, that meta represent that gap that uh, uh, I hope uh, will, be, will be filled between within God and science. So it's something uh, of, of a meta paradigm. So what should be the purpose of scientific research, um, of a new meta paradigm of scientific research and practice? And the proposed, uh, my proposed purpose is the following, to move science beyond reductionist theories and ideologies towards a more thorough and truthful understanding of our world. And from now on, from, from now till the end of my presentation, I'll explain this sentence. I'll show how true this sentence is by providing examples. So, but first, first, let's take a step back um, and see why things are the way they are. Why reductionism is there and what is um, reductionism for? And uh, everything has a, a, you know, a ratio and a rationale. So, there are good reasons why reductionism is there. So, in order to become a powerful analytical practical tool, each scientific discipline had to be anchored to a set of reductionist assumptions, presuppositions, and ideas. Remember, we are looking at a manifested world that has certain characteristics. We need to somehow uh, analytically decompose it in order to see it in its complexity. So two examples of how uh, you know, each discipline uh, anchors its development to some assumptions. Economics. The main reduction operated by economics is the following, and this is something you find in every economics manual. It is the definition of economics. So human beings are seen as rational, rational and self-interested choice makers. And the main scope of economics? Maximization of human welfare. Actually, there were good reasons why economics started off this way. Because at the time, human beings were economically oppressed by uh, institutions. And there was uh, this um, you know, um, eagerness for freedom expressed by some individuals, then becoming uh, founding fathers of economics. And freedom meant, you know, uh, looking at uh, human beings as uh, as independent, as choice makers, as some some as human beings that could determine their own faith and uh, improve their lives. So um, that was the way economics started off, and it's still the way economics operate now. But the world has radically changed uh, in between. Let's look at another um, science, which is an applied science, it's not a, a social science, um, which is medicine. The main reduction operated by medicine is, is the following. The human body is seen as a machine. That is quite something, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it proved very powerful, because um, by reducing uh, the complexity of human beings, uh, or the simplicity of human beings to machines, uh, scientists were able to discover how uh, the bodies work, 
and, uh, and then how to fight diseases, because that was the main scope of, uh, of medicine, fighting disease. I mean, look at it. Fighting disease is not improve the well-being of people. It is fighting disease. It was very clear purpose. Uh, somehow limited, we might say now, but that was necessary at the time. The issue is that that purpose is still there, and in being reductionist, it, is, it has become a roadblock for the evolution of medicine, at least in my view. And here you see an image I've taken from Wikipedia that uh, represents the essence of reductionism. So, <laughs> And, you know, an animated being becoming uh, somehow a reduced to uh, its component. So the essence of, is, of reductionism is uh, looking at the whole as uh, the um, ensemble of its parts, not more than that. And that is proved very powerful, proved the most powerful tool that science found and uh, it enabled humankind to, you know, develop extraordinary technological inventions based on this analytical focus. Other social sciences are, of course, sociology, psychology, political science, education sciences, and many others, but uh, somehow this presence of the main reduction and the main scope is common to, to them as well. Sometimes it's more complicated to, to derive. It's not as easy, at least to me, to my eyes, it's not as easy as uh, it is for economics and medicine. And then other applied sciences are architecture, engineering, and many others. Architecture and engineering, I mean, they are applied, so they require our evaluation of how to use knowledge. I mean, it's uh, quite uh, complicated. Uh, they are uh, not only, you know, aseptic uh, knowledge producers, they are normative tools, engineering, architecture, and so forth. So forth, the applied sciences. So then, what happened? Different disciplines had to grow, I mean, not, not had to, but uh, happened to, to grow very rapidly and expand through two main, in two main ways, by increasing specialization and by the development of core theories. So specialization means that uh, subgroups get formed within the disciplines that focus on subtopics. And these create sub-communities of people Focus on uh, um, things that are even more reduced in their scope and even more uh, technical and specific. Uh, at the same time, um, core theories uh, start permeating disciplines. Core, like, uh, for example, neoclassical economics versus Keynesian economics. These are core theories that sometimes are in conflict one with the other. So, they create somehow um, divisions within the scientific community, uh, within the disciplinary scientific uh, groups, and um, uh, in my view, they become problematic. Um, because disciplines, at the end of the day, are not only about uh, content and method, they are also statements of priorities. And each discipline tell us what is important, tell us what we should care about, and we, in an implicit way, also tell us what we should care less about. Mm -hmm. So, this piece becomes worldviews, and uh, worldviews often become 
divisive ideologies, if matched with the human need to feel superior, to prevail, to demonstrate its, its, its power and ego, then the worldview or, or to defend the position, worldviews become ideologies that are often divisive ideologies. So, but, there's a but here. Um, but if we learn to embed good and universal common sense, into the, uh, common sense into the process of science, we could build a science with the heart. So how could the science with the heart change this, um, this situation? So a science with the heart will help us to unequivocally detect all ideologies that obstruct the evolution of science and the larger scope of this each discipline unequivocally detect. The problem with ideology is that each ideology, in its own way to describe the manifested world, finds its own way to justify itself that is consistent and logical. So it's, it's easy to you know, protest and fight an ideology, but it's uh, difficult to logically dismantle it. But the science with the heart tapping into a different level of knowledge would, would allow us to, to have the, you know, the tool to, to um, detect uh, those ideologies. So, um, as I said, this, uh, let us start from, from the, this box in the middle. It, a disciplinary and technical ideology, which is a particular kind of ideology. In, in the scientific world, there are ideologies that are disciplinary and, and technical, and probably other kinds. Um, but I'm talking about the ideologies that are present in the scientific world. So um, they are built on this reassuring, very reassuring feeling of superiority from apparently all explaining ideas. I mean, uh, scientists are uh, oftentimes very, very confident, and they, their confidence is built, built on these ideas that they have that seem to be all explaining, and they are rightly confident. I mean, they are, to some extent, all explaining when we talk about the manifested world. Um, but the problem is that by falling in love with these ideas, they detach from the rest of the world. I mean, they just even without realizing many times, they just uh, end up in a bubble, mm -hmm. in, a, in a psychological and even a social bubble. We, it's not out of chance if we say, average tower, right? And the average tower is there, the rest of the world is, is, is uh, not, not there. But there's also the risk, of, the risk of losing touch with, guess what, common sense. We say it many times, we lose in touch with common sense. And let's look now at the two um, images that I picked. Well, look at the first one, um, and then look at what they write. Too much, but too narrow economics. <laughs> These are economists looking at the money all the day long. So, this is, uh, this is, um, Problematic. This is uh, probably beautiful to do. 
And once you fall in love with your algorithms, it's difficult, uh, you know, to step back. But, um, but then the problem is that <coughs> you tend to build an ideology and assert that knowledge, even beyond the scope of that knowledge. Because it wouldn't be problematic if you just, uh, you know, focused on economics all day long and just uh, affirm that, uh, okay, this is what... Uh, we can do from our reduced point of view, and this is what we suggest to be evaluated with many other suggestions. The problem comes when you know there's push, uh, this drive to, to push the ideology out of the bubble. And uh, let's focus on the right hand um, image. It talks about architecture. Too much, but too narrow architecture is the apotheosis of architecture for the sake of architecture. This is the point. Architecture for the sake of architecture. If you take love out of the equation, then love is replaced by the very object of study somehow. And there's still love there, because people love what they do, they are animated by love, but uh, it's a different kind of, uh, I mean, it's a reduced form of it, probably. So, I, I, I anticipated this slide. In the absence of a fundamental purpose, one anchor to love, we human beings tend to transform disciplines from means to end, from means to an end, to end in themselves. There's, there's a missing word here. And then the broader focus on the wider thing, uh, wider things is replaced by a narrower focus on the what and how. Somehow, you... You seem not to care so much on the why any longer, and, and more on the, on the what and how. So, let's go further. What would a science with a heart help us to do? It would help us to unequivocally detect fundamental causation mechanism, what Aristotle called call the final causes. Not only superficial correlations between symptoms, and uh, let's read what I write uh, down there. By definition, um, disciplines, the world says it, says that Elpas discipline, which is controlled through knowledge and technical force, our social natural world. But if disciplines are not based on a fundamental understanding of how and why love operates, they can support us either in predicting it or in healing it. Because in order to predict the world, you need to understand what is below, what, I mean, what is moving it forward. It's not from the photograph that you predict the future. It's from the flow. So, uh, let's look at the two. Uh, and healing is the same. Healing is obtained through the flow. It's not static. Healing is not a static property. Is not fixing. Fixing is something statical. Healing is something dynamic. So you can fix at the superficial level, and indeed sciences provide many fixes, but healing is, is different. Um, let's look at the two pictures here. I mean, the first picture just uh, um, wants to um, symbolize the, uh, the failure of economics to predict the financial crisis of 2008, and the many failure of economists to predict all sorts of things. 
and even the incapacity to use equations, mathematical equations, to predict. Mathematical equations are based on data which is collected in the past. How can you expect to predict the future on the past? I mean, it's, 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 it's reduction, but that, that, that is a large topic. And then, you know, the, the, the medicines and, and pills that, as I said, provide you know, temporary relief and sometimes are uh, absolutely necessary. So I'm not against them, on the contrary. <laughs> but um, um, healing, again, is something else. And there's another um, end. On the contrary, there's a risk here. Disciplines, if applied for the sake of disciplines, might end up unnecessarily overcomplicating our social world because everything that happens has an effect. So if you do something which is not correct, say not predicting the world or uh, using a pill which is not the right one, then you make things worse. And, uh, so disciplines might create as many new problems as they solve. So here is another quote. <clears throat> Overthinking ruins you, ruins the situation, twists things around, makes you worry, and just makes everything much worse than it actually is. Overthinking. Overthinking is the basis of overcomplication. Um, I had a note here because I wanted to read you another piece of my draft uh, paper on law. Uh, let's see. Where? Oh no, I also wanted to read you what Pope Francis has to say about all these things. So, first, Pope Francis. So, Laudato Si, the Encyclica, chapter 110. The specialization which belongs to Technology it talks more about technology than science, but technology is a derivation of science. Makes it difficult to see the larger picture. The fragmentation of knowledge proves helpful for concrete applications, yet it often leads to a loss of appreciation for the whole, for the relationship between things, and for the broader horizon, which then becomes irrelevant. This very fact makes it harder to find adequate ways of solving the more complex problems of today's world. Uh, yes, now is the time to read to you the second <laughs> part of my paper. Uh, this is another, another few paragraphs that I think it's a good time to read them. Um, okay, so when captured and unleashed through the art, loves, love instantly engenders deep emotions and enlightened thoughts. These thoughts are related to the ultimate reason why things came into the existence, into existence as a manifestation of love. Hence, they are fundamentally fruitful. Loving thoughts have a profound healing effect on human beings. For those, because those pieces of the puzzle that the mind has torn apart through mental analysis, are now pulled together again through heartful synthesis. Without this loving synthesis, science remains prone to errors and incompleteness at the time of explaining its analytical observations. It also ends up providing ideas, recommendations, and therapies based on partial and biased explanations. In the vacuum of love, there remains room for multiple theories 
most often generated within the boundaries of disciplines or school of thoughts. These theories are superficial and limited and sometimes also ideological if they hide one aspect of truth through another. So when they are applied, they generate unintended consequences. On the contrary, when human beings are able to intercept the loving aim of the reality they are observing, this reality becomes self-explanatory and messenger of what to do next and what not to do. So, this is, uh, this is uh, somehow to the point here. Uh, so, now more than ever, now almost done. Now more than ever, simplicity is a stand needed. Simplicity can only be found at the level of love, as <coughs> explained before. And by the way, simplicity is what John May talked about. Is <laughs> the pillar of you know um, the relationship that we can build with God. So and here, guess what? Albert Einstein again comes in support. And let's read what Albert Einstein says. The supreme task of a physicist is to arrive at those elementary laws from which the cosmos can be built by pure deduction. There is no logical path to these laws, only intuition resting on sympathetic understanding of experience can reach them. The state of mind that enables a man to do work of this kind is akin to that of a religious worshipper or the lover. The daily efforts come from no deliberate intentional program, but straight from the art. So, Einstein himself had this intuition that there's a ch different channel to reach uh, the truth, to reach even the laws. The laws are not the theories. Laws are something else. Laws are always there, and even if we don't talk about them. So, <clears throat> um, my other, other grand hypothesis, this is the, the last one, I promise. So, if elementary laws do exist that govern our physical law world, elementary laws should ex also exist that govern our social world. I don't know why I say it. I mean, I'm convinced of this. And uh, I will search for them. So, um, this is the representation for, uh, of, of it you know, one of the simplest law of physics. And uh, so where, where to go? So what I'm writing here is the following. We human beings and societies are moved by love and for love. When we will eventually understand this scientifically, not only intuitively, we will have taken a big step in the direction of our healing. So these laws inevitably talk about love. So where to start our search for these laws, unknown laws from? Possibly for a more intuitive exploration of human emotions, that's my intuition, and from the most recent advances of quantum physics that may one day prove what we, we only can have an intuition on. And let's look at emotions for a moment. Emotion is what emotion derives from Latin, ex movere to move out, to move the flow. Emotion is what is move, emotions are what move human beings. So emotions move the world, move the social world. There are many theories on the social world. The social world uh, is the following or is 
uh, you know, not the following, or is because of X, because of Y, but there's something that moves the social world, and these are emotions, and one emotion I'd like to focus on is, is power. Mm -hmm. And uh, Xu Moi, I don't know if you heard this uh, uh, Hinduist uh, uh, master, affirmed that, that power, uh, what did he say? He said the power, if you don't uh, uh, love, um, if you don't know the power of love, you end up loving power. Mm -hmm. It looks like, like power is the, uh, the other uh, face of the coin of, of love and uh, because in wanting to affirm our power, we want to preserve ourselves and it's love there. But power, of course, has a big impact on the world. The search for power, the affirmation of power. So it seems to me that uh, by exploring power before other, before going into straight into emotions, we, we might find a way to then move into the emotional world with a better understanding of it. And then quantum physics, uh, well, I think <coughs> other people here in this place talk about quantum physics and how quantum physics is uh, uh, teaching us, I'm reading here this quote, uh, that everything we thought was physical uh, is not physical. Actually, I would say that uh, is physical and not physical at the same time. I will not put an either or, but uh, I, I, I'm not an expert in quantum physics, but I'm learning more and more, and I'm certainly, <coughs> I, I, I think that I, I, I just detect, detect the essence of it. Okay, so the conclusion. My conclusion is a very optimistic one. Um, and it's the following. Science with the heart will help humankind tap into the fundamental positivity of our world. Fundamental positivity. It will help us, it will help us to shape optimal and ad hoc solutions. Optimal and ad hoc. It's not a world of standardized science, which is maximization and standardized solutions. Optical and ad hoc solutions, different. Each case is different. Each case requires a different solution that you cannot, you know, somehow push from above. Not only solutions, but also ideas and technologies. Everything can be derived. I mean, the paradigm is, is, is a door. Uh, it will also help us disentangle ethical dilemmas, if not prevent them at the source, once we truly understand where the flow goes, where love goes. So thank you.